We're gonna use this cannon to completely destroy Protestantism. Carnage like you wouldn't believe. What's that? Wrong kind of cannon? Well, why didn't you guys tell me that before I set up this whole thing? Sorry about the confusion there, guys. I guess I got a little carried away with everything. If you were to read my comments on a lot of my YouTube videos, you might see something along the lines of, the canon of scripture is a complete death blow to Protestantism. A shocking number of people are completely convinced that this one argument destroys the idea of Protestantism itself. And I'll admit it, the first time I was completely stumped. I'd never heard the argument before, so I decided to look into it myself and see, does it hold any water? If it did, if it was a good argument and Protestantism didn't have a good defense against this argument, or a good apology, a reason to believe this, then I would have to leave Protestantism. I'd have to transition over to maybe traditional Catholicism. My wife would have to get used to wearing a veil. Honey, it's for the Lord. So what did I discover? Is this my announcement that I'm joining RCIA this year? Well, in this video, I'll explain the argument. I'll address each point of the argument to see if it's as catastrophic as suggested. And finally, I'll give a Protestant view of the canon and its development. And as a bonus, I promise we'll get back to this canon before the end, so stick around to see that. But first, let me begin by explaining what a cannon is. A cannon is a large caliber gun classified as a type of artillery, which usually launches a projectile using an explosive chemical propellant. That's cannon with a double N in the middle. A cannon is this. A collection or list of sacred books accepted as genuine. Religions often have canons, but this could also refer to works of popular fiction. For example, the Star Wars universe has a canon. It's a list of movies, books, and I think even comics that are considered genuine, the, the real story told officially. There's fan fiction outside of that, but it doesn't count as the canon. In the case of Christianity, the canon refers to the list of books that you find at the very front of your Bible. This is split into the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are the list of books that are determined to be official and deserving of being called scripture. From now on, every time I use the word canon in this video, you can think table of contents if that's helpful. So what's the significance of the canon when it comes to this argument against Protestantism? Well, I'll let the Catholic apologist Patrick Madrid give his rendition of this argument. He says, Another problem for Sola Scriptura is the canon of the New Testament. There is no inspired table of contents in scripture that tells us which books belong and which ones do not. That information comes to us from outside scripture. Moreover, the knowledge of which books comprise the canon of the New Testament must be infallible. If not, there is no way to know for certain if the books we regard as inspired really are inspired. This knowledge must also be part of divine revelation. If not, it is merely a tradition of men, and if that were so, Protestants would be forced into the intolerable position of championing, championing, championing a canon of purely human origin. Championing is the kind of word that you use in a book, but not in a YouTube video. This is typically used as an argument against the Protestant distinctive of sola scriptura, which means that scripture is the only rule of faith that is infallible. The Catholics and Orthodox and other imperial churches in that category believe that the church can rule infallibly in some cases, and therefore scripture alone, sola scriptura cannot be true. These infallible rulings don't just consist of affirming something already clearly taught in scripture, but ruling infallibly in a new way. Exhibit A is the canon of scripture. To Patrick and those in agreement with him, the church defined the inspired table of contents, which is not in scripture, and they defined it infallibly, and that is the basis of our trust in it, their infallible declaration. If they're right, this is a dead-on argument against Protestantism. Let's look at each point in Patrick's argument. Well, first off, he is factually correct that the table of contents comes to us from outside scripture. He's right about that. But the implication here is that Protestants cannot point to things outside of scripture for any of their beliefs, because that would be inconsistent with sola scriptura. So is that true? Short answer, no. That simply isn't what sola scriptura means. To Protestants, the church and tradition do have genuine authority and can be pointed to. They just aren't infallible authority. 
Every Lord's Day, the Protestant churches around the world gather together and affirm the creeds, affirm the councils, and affirm doctrines like the Trinity, which is not explicitly in scripture, but implicit in scripture. Not because they believe these have been defined by some kind of infallible authority, but because they believe that, according to scripture, these traditional doctrines are inerrant and profitable for use. There are two main reasons for this. One, the creeds and doctrines are found implicitly in scripture, as I already said, and historically they were defined on the basis of scripture. In other words, these aren't creeds that were made up on the basis of the church being able to make new doctrine. Rather, they represented the teaching that we find in the whole of scripture in an easy to understand and concise package. That's what the creeds are for. Two, Christian tradition has a valid and authoritative place for Protestants, but only insofar as it does contradict scripture. If you come across a tradition that goes against scripture, you don't side with tradition, you side with scripture. Simple as that. So we've shown that Protestants can use tradition within their own worldview, but is it reasonable to do so in the case of the canon? Well, that leads us to Patrick's second point. As a reminder, he says, moreover, the knowledge of which books comprise the canon of the New Testament must be infallible. If not, there is no way to know for certain if the books we regard as inspired really are inspired. In other words, the way this is explained in the Catholic or Orthodox view is that the church was infallible in its declaration of the canon. Protestants, of course, do not accept this, but is that reasonable? Can we accept a tradition, such as the canon of scripture, from an authority that is able to make errors? In other words, not infallible. To answer this, let's examine how the canon of scripture was actually put together. Not the New Testament, but the Old Testament canon. The ancient people of God, the Jews, were entrusted with the oracles of God, as Paul states in the book of Romans. And this should be obvious to us. The last book of the Old Testament was written long before the establishment of the New Testament church. 400 plus years. For centuries, it was not the Christian church, but the Jewish people that held together the canon of scripture. So in their guardianship of scripture, can we say that it was because the Jews were infallible or they had some kind of infallible leadership? Of course not. As Keith Matheson points out, her repeated idolatry, apostasy, exile, and ultimate rejection of Christ all point to the obvious fact of her fallibility. In addition to this, historically, there is no claim of infallibility by Jewish councils or even for the high priest, who is the highest ranking man in the Jewish hierarchy. None of these men are ever believed by Jews to have been infallible or hold some kind of charism of infallibility. Despite this, it is absolutely clear from Paul's words in Romans 3 that they were entrusted with the scriptures and that they passed them down faithfully and accurately to the believers in the New Testament. As Timothy Lim points out in his article on the formation of the canon, Paul was not interested in defining his canon, but in his letters we find evidence that he was following a canon that was consistent with the Pharisaic canon. And Paul isn't the only one. Our Lord himself seemed to affirm the accuracy of the Hebrew scriptures broadly in passages such as Matthew 5, 17 to 18, and John 10, 35. It has been estimated that one-tenth of the words recorded of Christ are taken from the Old Testament as accepted by the Pharisees, which is the canon as we have it today. Matheson summarizes this whole argument when he states, the Jews lived for 1,500 years without an infallible or inspired church declaration concerning the parameters of the Old Testament canon. But they did not have to wait until the coming of Christ and his endorsement of their canon before they could know they had the inspired word of God. In other words, do you believe that a Jew living in 100 BC could say he had scripture or that his people had scripture? If you take the stance that in order to say you know what scripture is, you have to have an infallible authority declare a canon of scripture, then you can't say that anyone in the Old Testament times or the New Testament times prior to 400 AD at the earliest, and I would argue much, much later than that, no one, none of them, 
could say that they had scripture. They might be able to say that scripture existed, but they couldn't make any kind of definitive statement of this word of scripture or that word of scripture because there was no infallible authority claiming to declare a canon. But the Jews obviously did have scripture. Paul obviously thought scripture was passed down. Jesus himself holds his people accountable to their knowledge of the word of God. Therein lies the problem with Catholics or Orthodox using the canon of scripture as an argument against Protestantism. The Old Testament Jews were able to do this by the providential guidance of God. There is no reason to think that the New Testament saints couldn't do the same. All right, so we've heard the anti-Protestant argument, and we've determined that it really doesn't have any teeth because Protestants can appeal to tradition, and there is an example of a canon of scripture without any kind of infallible authority. But what we still need is a coherent Protestant view of the canon and its development. Imagine with me, if you will, trying to write a history of the American Civil War using only primary sources, those kinds of documents written by people who were actually experiencing the war themselves. Do you think you could do it? Sure, some of you might not be interested in the subject or skilled enough at writing to put together a book of that caliber, but a sufficiently determined person should be able to put together a history book from first-hand sources alone without too much trouble at all. How would you achieve this? Well, you would have to track down documents and vet them to see if they were primary sources, one, and if they were authentic, two. This is achievable now over 150 years after the actual war itself. And imagine how much easier it'd be if you were living 20. 30, 40 years after the, the event happened. In many cases, it would be as easy as walking over to your next door neighbor to talk to someone who experienced the war firsthand. This begins to give you some idea, some insight into how the canon developed. The church from the very beginning had to determine each of these writings that are now in the canon of scripture, were they primary sources, meaning were they apostolic in origin, and two, were they authentic? The same two criteria in our, as in our civil war example. And of course, the Christians who were answering these questions from the beginning were well equipped to do it. They were living at the same time as Paul. They likely heard him or one of the other apostles preach, or maybe they spent time with Matthew and actually watched him write his gospel. To use Matthew's example for a minute, Eusebius, the first church historian, says this about it. For Matthew, who had at first preached to the Hebrews, when he was about to go to other peoples, committed his gospel to writing in his native tongue, and thus compensated those whom he was obliged to leave for the loss of his presence. And when Mark and Luke had already published their gospels, they say that John, who had employed all his time in proclaiming the gospel orally, finally proceeded to write for the following reason. The three gospels already mentioned, having come into the hands of all and into his own, too, they say he accepted them and bore witness to their truthfulness, but that there was lacking in them an account of the deeds done by Christ at the beginning of his ministry. So is Eusebius describing a tangled web of options and controversy over which gospels were authentic? Not at all. Matthew gives his gospel to those who knew him personally, and he hands it to them, interestingly, as a replacement for his own apostolic presence, which is what Protestants believe scripture is. And the three synoptic gospels are said to be in the hands of all and in the hands of John himself by the time he writes his gospel. These early Christians receiving scripture knew that our two criteria of apostolic origin and authenticity were met. You don't need an infallible authority to tell you what is apostolic when it is the apostles themselves who are handing you the letters. But what about the other books that didn't make it into scripture? Why were they counted out? In the earliest canon lists from the first few centuries of the church, you see things like the Shepherd of Hermas being rejected because it was known to be a new writing. It was known to be novel. In addition, the writings of heretics were also clearly identified and rejected because the authorship of these novel books was known to be 
a heretic. They knew who was writing these things and how novel and recent they were writing them. The same way the church identified and rejected heresy itself, they identified and rejected heretical texts. So if you were sitting today in the 21st century with your Bible open and wondering how did they pick through all the available texts and decide just on these couple of scrolls you see here in the list, that's like perfectly picking your own name out of a hat with a hundred other options. The church must have been infallible to be able to do that. But as soon as you take yourself back to the time in question and realize that these texts were being received by Christian men and women who knew the apostles personally, you realize that there is very little question as to what should be put in and what should be left out. Dr. Roger Nichols summarizes this well in describing our confidence that we have in scripture. He calls it the witness of the Holy Spirit given corporately to God's people and made manifest by a nearly unanimous acceptance of the New Testament canon in Christian churches. By God's guidance and grace, the books and letters written by the apostles were passed between churches and quickly acknowledged to be the word of God. But you may say, you still can't get any divine canon by going out into a cabin in the woods and reading the Bible all by yourself. It's just not in the text. You still have to rely on tradition, you might tell me. Well, as I already said in this video, tradition isn't really a problem for Protestants. But if this is still a hangup for you, check out this video where I break down all the different views of scripture and tradition from Catholics to Orthodox to Protestants and even to Latter-day Saints. It's extremely helpful in furthering this conversation. Until next time, my name is Steven, and this has been My Apologies. Thank you.